State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Adam Robinson, co-founder and CEO at Get Emails about the state of email-based retargeting. Get Emails provides you with the email addresses that will help you send targeted, personalized offers to drive traffic back to your site and increase conversions. Let's begin. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, I know it's pretty busy times. Like um, you're in the midst of just pushing the product, and just you've just launched. So, thank you for joining us. No problem. So, um, it's pretty interesting. I, I know your team had reached out to us, and uh, and again, like we appreciate you you connecting. Um, and I think it's interesting the topic that we're going to have today more about email attrition and, and, and um, retargeting. You guys say that it's um, the first retargeting email platform. But before we start into go into that, I'd love to just get a bit more about information about you guys and how you got started. Sure. So I'll give you the five-minute story about how I kind of ended up where I was. I graduated from university in 2003. I moved to New York, and I worked at this company called Lehman Brothers. And I was a credit default swap trader. Uh, Lehman Brothers was like the one bank that went defunct during the financial crisis and credit default swaps were the reason that it went defunct. So it was a really, really interesting place to be at that time. But when I moved to New York, my college, my, the, the first roommates that I had in New York started Vimeo and College Humor in my, in my apartment. So like I watched these guys become these prolific internet entrepreneurs. I mean, Vimeo is a top 10 website. And um you know, the entire time I was just like dying to like get into this tech thing. Um, after the financial crisis, there was a ton of regulation that happened in our market. I'd saved up um, enough money to where I could just sort of like try to like fulfill this entrepreneurial dream that I had. And, you know, I started investing in a bunch of stuff. And like somehow I started this thing um, with a couple guys. It was like an email service provider. And it worked. And the way we got started was we actually figured out that this company in our space, uh, who I can't really say the name of, but they're in Boston and they're a big email marketing company. They were leaving customer records on the outside of their website. Um, they were just creating community pages for all their uh, customers that had a name, a first name, last name, zip code, and business name on them. And there was an unencrypted URL or an unencrypted six digit number in the URL that if you jumped by one, it was a dead page. And if you jumped by two, it was the next record. So we were able to like scrape together and accumulate like 250,000 customer records, then like built a call center and a price and performance competitive product. And we got 5,000 people to switch over. So all that is to lead into how we got to this next product. The, the, the hard thing about that was their audience was like, Baby boomer, brick and mortar, nine e-commerce, like like flower shops and stuff, sending out these email newsletters, yeah. and their product wasn't that good. So it was a double-edged sword. One, it was amazing because it gave us several million dollars of revenue on very low expenses that we could kind of figure out the next step. But like the product and value proposition that we built for that was totally uncompetitive in the market we were fighting it. I mean, email marketing is a very, very hard space. There's like 165 competitors. It's very crowded these days, yeah. MailChimp absolutely dominates it. There's a couple guys who are doing an incredible job uh, in, in, with niche plays, but 
like customer acquisition costs are through the roof. Pretty much every vendor has the same feature set. They're kind of talking about it in exactly the same way. So, you know, I've spent the last, you know, that, that, that first thing that I talked to you about, that was a finite supply of leads and that ran out, let's see when it ran out, probably the middle of 2016. And I spent the last few years trying to figure out how to differentiate in this space because, you know, the business is great. It's not, you know, it, it's, it was my first entrepreneurial venture. We just felt, you know, if you talk to certain people about how you're supposed to handle things like this, like there's a kind of guy who's had like prolific billion dollar ex exit success. That's like, well, just like sell it for one time's revenue and like go on to something more exciting, you know? But I think there's another type of person that was like, okay, like it's a great lifestyle business for you right now. Like what if you could double the revenue? You know, like you can't tell me that you've tried everything and just can't figure out how to double the revenue. And it's like, well, the Google guys didn't invent search. Like surely there's a way to differentiate in any space. So I was kind of more, you know, in the camp of that later thing. I was like, well, I'm just, it's, it's not, you know, we're making money. Like the business is great. Our employees are happy. I'm going to just see if I can figure out how to present our product in a way that MailChimp is not presenting themselves because like MailChimp, I mean, it's such a juggernaut. It's like, what am I going to do? Be more free than MailChimp? <laughs> like that's very difficult to do. How did you th realize that that was this need was a, a separate company in itself as opposed to being just a feature from you? So, so my plan, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to, how to like get this email marketing company grown fast for the last few years. I was like, this is great. It's, it's well, one thing that I love about this technology personally from a business owner's perspective is yep. that since it's gray area, there are just by nature of operating in a market like that, just a lot of people won't go near it, you know? So I like, for instance, MailChimp, they would never build this feature in their app. It's too risky, you know, they, they just, they're trying to IPO, they just wouldn't do it. So none of the public companies would. So my first thought when we realized that it worked because we used it on our own app and like, we're just emailing these people like, Hey, you were on our homepage the other day. Like we can give you a feature that does this, which yeah. is like that. And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard of. So plan a was we were going to put it as a differentiating feature in the email marketing app that we felt confident none of the big players were going to would, would copy. And I love that because it's like, when do you ever get that in software? You know, any feature you build, you can pretty much guarantee that if it's a good feature, every vendor under the sun is going to have it in like six months. So I was really excited about that. But then once we got it to our users, they liked it so much. And in particular, publishers liked it so much that we sat down and talked about it and we were like, okay, if we only put this in Robly and make people switch to Robly to use it, like we automatically disqualify probably 85 or 90% of the market from using it at all, which doesn't seem like the right thing to do because just based on the reception, like I think it's just the, the, the conversations that we have about it, you know, I've read a bunch of stuff about starting startups and what in the beginning product market fit feels like. Mm -hmm. And with the email marketing app, like it just doesn't feel like that. Right. In the descriptions people give are like, people are pulling the product out of you faster than you can make it, you know, like 
they use it and then they, you know, it's a crappy experience and they still tell people about it, you know? So that was the kind of thing that publishers in particular, that was how they were reacting to this. And I can explain why a little bit later, but you know, our view was, okay, this is probably a bigger thing than Robley VSP anyway. Uh, why would we not, why would we handicap ourselves and only be able to dress like 10% of the market? And when I say, People aren't willing to switch. I just like think today the psychology of most business owners is like, if I told you about this feature, no matter how good it is, you stop listening when I say you need to move off of wherever, like sail through or Clavier or whatever. It's just not something that that you would do, you know. Like like the feature could be great, but if it requires something that's that annoying to do you're just not going to listen you're not going to care so some people will but most people won't so the idea is make it a, a lightweight you know basically commercialize this technology by making a super lightweight software as a service app that's dead simple to get started easy to install and connects to everything that's kind of the vision so Long story short, I tried a bunch of stuff that really just like did not work in like in like spectacular ways, some of them. And then I got turned on to this ID product through a friend who was actually the CEO of BounceX. Like they do a bunch of stuff and they work with a ton of publishers. And like I'm sure every publisher has heard of BounceX. Yeah. Um, and last year they acquired two years ago, they acquired this company. It was a cross-device ID company, and they figured out that with, you know, the amount of volume they have going through their sign-up forms, basically, that they could, like, combine this cross-device ID technology, and the application that they had for it was, and this was an e-commerce application, actually, which I thought was where we were going with all this, it was basically like, okay, for most e-commerce companies, other than, like, Amazon, you're not logged in when you go to their website. so. There's like 15% of people that were logged in. And of, but there was this other part of it where of all of the traffic that came, people typically had 50 or 60% of that traffic on their email list. So if you could identify when somebody was on your website but wasn't logged in and they abandoned cart, you could hit them with that email. And that's like the most lucrative email and email marketing. So they were having a ton of success with that selling triggered email at scale. And, um, you know, I started sort of investigating and we had a conversation between the two of us and he's like, you know, I actually, we can't actually do this because it's too close to the line for our investors. But like, I think the bigger opportunity is using identification technology and giving people records that are not on their list yet. Cause that's really what everybody wants, right? Like, yeah. If you ask somebody, do you want to send more email to the people that are on your list? Or do you want to send email to people? Or do you want new records so you can grow your business or fight this attrition or whatever the use case is? They want the latter. So, I mean, man, I don't know when that was. That was like about a year and a half ago. And it was just one of these things where like my partners and I just put our heads down and tried to figure out like how we could do this and how we could put it together. And um, well, first we started trying to pre-sell. We had a, a deal with them. It's like they're super upmarket from where we were. And we thought it was like a great 
feature to differentiate ourselves in the email marketing category. Like everybody else is selling this, like we have all those features and we can also do this identification piece and get more abandonment type emails out. Could not get any traction with that whatsoever. Um, so, but when we were talking to people and pitching that, and I turned around and said, by the way, like, I can also use this, in this, we didn't have it yet. I was like, I could also use this technology to get you customer records you didn't have yet. You'd see people's eyes light up. You know, it's something they've never heard of before. So it basically evolved into something where there's, there's technologically a way to put this together in this world. I think it, ha I think it just hasn't been commercialized very well yet just because it's one of these areas where like, okay, when I explain to somebody what get, e get emails does, I say, you put, a pixel, you put a pixel on your website and we can identify up to 35% of the visitors and then give you third-party opt-ins with email address, first name, last name, and postal of people that have been on your website and the price is very reasonable. It starts at about, we do a SaaS model, it starts about 25% cents per record, can scale down to 20 and a huge size, we can probably get down to like 15 cents. So the first question is always, is this real, <laughs> you know? And then I can generally convince them that it's real through just testimonials of, of other businesses like theirs that have seen success with it. And then the next question is always, 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 every single time, how is this legal? Is this legal, right? You, you're reading my mind as well. So the, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, I mean, I've, I've just, I've talked to 300 people about it now. So I just know what, <laughs> I know what, I know how people react given, the, the sort of cultural background we have up to this point. So the legal conversation is a very interesting one. It is only okay, okay meaning legal, it's only legal to do in the USA. It's not GDPR, it's not Canadian CAN-SPAM compliant, but it is legal in the USA. And it's shocking that it's CAN-SPAM compliant in the USA because most people, and, and I owned an ESP. I owned an email marketing company since 2013. Yeah. And I just learned this like three months ago when I hired a lawyer to put together all this documentation that we give our customers to give to their legal team. So turns out in the US, the CAN-SPAM Act of 2003, which was reviewed in February of this year and the Federal Trade Commission said it was okay. It has nothing to do with opt-ins. Email marketing in the U.S. is opt-out. Now, then your reaction is like, why do I think that it's opt-in? Well, the only way, the, the, the best way to grow the email infrastructure in the U.S., the whole ecosystem, was to perpetuate this notion that email marketing is opt-in. Like, and it started with Seth Godin's permission marketing in 1999. Yeah. And like Spam House, a few years later, adopted their definition for spam, which is effectively like email is spam if it is bulk and you do not have proven consent, right? So interestingly, our thing, we give you the source URL and the timestamp of the opt-in. So you can go back and check the privacy policy on it. And basically how this technology works is on one side of it, it's cookies, right? It's just like a third-party cookie network that identifies in a hashed email in a browser from people that have been cruising around the internet for a long time through different ad networks. Now, the other side of it is 
a massive list of data from lead gen sites. And there's all these sites in the US, I don't know if they're in Europe too, but it's like, there's a few spaces. It's like mortgage refi, healthcare, credit cards, um, trying to think of some other ones. I don't even know. But these guys have accumulated all this data over the last three or four years. Typically, it's completely worthless after, I mean, you know, you know, if you've ever mailed to a list, it's like old data, like fresh data is good data, old data is bad data. But like the magic of email-based retargeting is that in that browser cookie, there's a hashed email. And if that person was alive on your webpage yesterday, there's only so, so bad that email can be. Does that make sense? Right, okay. Yeah, and so. then you take that hashed email and you match it back to the customer records that you're getting from these lead gen guys. And all of a sudden, like a piece of data that by itself is completely worthless, if it's got that same email address in it, then that customer record is good all of a sudden. You know, so it's like allowing these lead gen guys to, to further liquefy their, their data that was otherwise worthless. So like what, what, what the email ecosystem was trying to get you to not do was just buy a list and spam to it or acquire data in some other way and spam to it. Yeah. They don't, how these ISPs are set up, they care about engagement with the email more than anything else, right? And they tried to set up a set of best practices that would lead people to send email that people engaged with. So, you know, as someone who owns an ESP, like I don't really care where you got your email addresses. The thing that I care most about is that people are opening and clicking on it because I know that if they are and the spam complaints aren't too high, they want those emails. And I also know that if that happens, it like deliverability will never be an issue. So this is this, it's, it's, it's certainly, you could, you could not say that it's not gray area with a straight face. Like it is definitely operating in a zone that the most conservative publishers, especially would never touch, right? Like the, the, the biggest companies in the world from a PR perspective, they just accord to best practices because they're part of forming this ecosystem, right? But it's amazing because it is, a legal way to fight list attrition, grow your list 10 times faster than you otherwise would. And these are targeted and engaged emails that you're emailing to that are very inexpensive, right? So technology's out there. And my argument is, I just don't think, I think that because of all of that, that dogma that's been going around in the email infrastructure that, it hasn't been commercialized very well. And I think that it will be commercialized well because the one real rebuttal that you would have against doing something like this is it's gonna mess up my deliverability. And this doesn't because the customers are actually engaged, you know, even though they didn't opt into your form and they're not as engaged, right? They're certainly not high, as high intent as someone who asks you to email them. But even if they're half of that, Right, like that's still a decent open rate for most people, you know. Now, I just want to emphasize this so, so that for our audience just so they understand as well. So, to you said in in order to differentiate between a feature and an actual company and a product, a the market conditions. So you identify that this is a specific use case and it's different from actually audience growth and engagement for emails. 
And the second thing you meant you, you looked at was friction. So if you add this, if you added this as a feature on your existing product, then the likelihood of people switching over is not gonna, you know, it's gonna be much harder, and the adoption is gonna be harder. So I think those are conditions that you mentioned that can really help with differentiating it as its own product. And, and obviously, yeah, you, you, artic- you, you articulated it much more elegantly than I did. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think, I think, I think that's really that's a really good lesson that people can take from this. And I appreciate you going in depth with with the story. Um, I mean, just really touching briefly on the legal point again. Um, so I know you know that that's a gray area, but do you, have you guys? And because you obviously speaking with lawyers, and, and they're going to give you advice. So from an US point of view, because um, I know as well that California is really, is going to be moving towards like a GDPR style of their own law. How, how are you going to combat against that? And, and secondly, are you guys also looking at international uh, publishers and, and clients and, and how, how are you going to manage that? So that? this is the third, this is the third question. Once, so by the way, we have a legal packet and I can send you a, a like link to it so people can just like click and download the whole thing. And it hits we'll put it in the show notes for sure. We'll exactly. put it in the show notes. Yeah. So once I get people comfortable around can spam, the next thing they ask is, well, what about this California stuff? And the California stuff is just misunderstood. People think exactly what you said, that the California regulation is GDPR and it's just not GDPR, like full stop. It's about data brokering and it's about really what the California regulation is, is it's about notifying your users, similar to the websites that all say that we use cookies now, right? You have to click okay on every single one of them. Mm -hmm. If you qualify and qualify means have revenues over $25 million, you have to put verbiage in your privacy policy that describes that you collect this type of information. So it's a privacy policy addendum at worst. And it's only for people to qualify and qualifying is either being over $25 million in revenue or like it's two other conditions. It's like over, you have to meet one of them. So it's either, yeah. The other two are something about over 50% of your sales comes from selling data and like over 75% of your sales comes from California. And I think you have to meet like two or one, I don't know. But most people don't qualify to start with. Some do for sure. Uh, And when you do qualify, it has nothing to do with opt-in marketing. It's disclosure about the fact that you're using this type of technology. Yeah. Totally different than than GDPR, you know? But I think people are just sort of programmed to think, okay, like California is getting more aggressive. GDPR is more aggressive than can spam. California must be getting must be doing GDPR, which is just not the case. No, I appreciate you re, um, clearly explained that. How about how about um, internationally? Like, what what advice are you getting? In, in, just in case, are you, are you across much of the other country yeah. laws, or <laughs> how are you going to be? Unfortunately, unfortunately, international is just like no shot. <laughs> It's, this there, is it's, it's just patently like non-GDPR compliant. So, so, so we 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 run up against two things. Like some organizations, especially if they're European, it's like even their operations in the U.S. are GDPR compliant. They won't touch it. They won't look at it. They won't hear about it. And you know, obviously, if 
thing, you know, it, it's our database is only U.S. emails. It always, it will be. And the U.S. could change the can spam law to something more like that at some point. But for now, it can only happen in the U.S., like, period, unfortunately. That's yeah. That's that's unfortunate for for those who are listening, not listening. Yeah, for those who are listening that are outside of the U.S. I mean, uh, but well, they can. I mean, they can legally still use the technology on their U.S. customers. Like, if you put the code on your site, you will only get contact records from the USA. And since it's the U.S., the GDPR doesn't really. It doesn't. It's not relevant. It doesn't apply. You know. Okay. No. Let's take a step back for a quick, just a brief moment. Um, so, looking at the, you know, you, let's like you've said, we call it email-based retargeting. So, have you, when you guys did your research, I know you mentioned about how ESP providers focusing on audience growth, and we spoke touched about that. Have you then, and, and then you spoke about bounces change. Have you looked at even other indirect competitors and seen? what other people other provide as well. So I know um, there's, uh, you know, like the ad mobs and there's other co- co- companies that focus on uh, retargeting in general as, as, as an advertising product. But was there any thought about looking at, at that point of view and, um, and looking at different things around retargeting and comparing that? So everything that I looked at, the difference between this and the reason we kind of wanted to create the category with it was you bought the record once and you owned it forever and you could do what you wanted. Every, every other email retargeting that I saw and I may be missing some was something like either ad roll. Like you said, it was like they're doing some ID product and they get the person's email address and they do, you know, they stick it in their inbox whenever and you're like kind of getting charged an impression for that like they don't add that person to your list right do whatever you want with it or it was just like the gmail inbox retargeting type of thing you know so if there's other stuff that i'm missing please tell me i'd love to check it out um but this is kind of the first the first thing thing that i ran across that was like okay like we can actually like legally get these people records they buy them once and they can do whatever they want with them and then we tried it and work for people, you know? So yeah, I think there's, I think there, there's, there's definitely those indirect competitors, but I think it's like a, it, it serves a little bit different a purpose, you know, also a big differentiator, which why theirs is better than ours is like, theirs is more real time. We give you data once a day. So like every day at 11 AM Eastern, it dumps data in, mm-hmm. which, which it's just a different use case than those other types that you know we're talking like, you know, you want to, with that other type of retargeting, and, and admittedly ours would be better, and I hope we can do this someday, like if you can catch somebody while they're in a session and they leave the session and go into their inbox and there's marketing from the same place from them, that's obviously very, very powerful. But it does absolutely nothing to solve this massive, massive problem in a world of list attrition in like an inexpensive and efficient way uh, and with engaged contacts. So... So yeah, that's kind of how I like see the landscape. The the other players are doing this thing where it's like you can pay Google and Facebook and AdRoll and whoever else for, you know, multiple clicks back from the same person. But like, this is where you own the record. Yeah, let's delve into list attrition one as well. And let's go through the other issues as well. Like for me, list attrition, um, it's it's the case where a lot of, because 
even in general how there's a lot of high turnover within companies people might go from one company to another and um, they might forget to subscribe back to your newsletter as a result or you know you, I, I constantly see that attrition coming regularly from our newsletters and I'm curious to see um, how how you think other publishers are speaking to you about that and um, and also the other issues common issues that you're seeing Sure. So this is one thing that pops up over and over again. So as far as the value proposition to this uh, or of this, the clearest value proposition we have seen is from smaller publishers that are like, uh, for whatever reason, there's been a ton of local magazines in the U S that have just like latched onto this. And a good example is, uh, you know, we work with Marin magazine. It's like this magazine from Marin County. And I'm like, why do you like this so much talking to the publisher? And she said, well, it's simple. We get paid a hundred dollars CPM for a newsletter takeover. And that's our biggest revenue source. And she's like, everybody in our industry, it's the same thing. Um, it's their biggest revenue source and they just get paid a CPM for a newsletter takeover. And, uh, and that just means an advertiser just like they can blast wherever they want to this person's list. So at our most expensive price, we're selling records that open similarly to the rest of their list, right? So there's two sides to that sale. One is we have 33,000 contacts or whatever it is. And then the other side is like we get a 17% open rate, or whatever the open rate is. So we're giving them contacts that open at the same rate that, and we're giving them those contacts for basically $250 CPM at the most expensive when they're getting paid a hundred CPM per newsletter. So they're paying that back at worst case in two and a half cents. Yeah. And they're doing, I don't know how many per month they're doing, but they're doing, you know, it's not something they're, this, this is their biggest revenue driver. It's, it's a frequent newsletter buyout that occurs. So the ROI is like fantastic. And I'm doing some stuff. I'm working with my backend system. And I think, we give postal records right now too. And I'm trying to figure out a way to lower the price of the records for only email, first name and last name. And I think I can figure out a way to get it down to like 15 cents or something. So it just gets even more compelling. So that's like from a, you know, I'm making money use case. The other problem is, so other type, you know, there's another publisher who list attrition is always a thing, right? Like if you were to ask them, like, what is your, the, the, the most pressing, painful thing you're dealing with right now, it's probably not list attrition, but it's always there in the background. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, like we're getting new customers and our list is so big that like, it's just natural to like 1% falls off for newsletter, whatever it is. So I think for people who, there's a type of publisher that sees that value so clearly. It's like, I get paid every time I send $100 percent per thousand contacts and i can get contacts for whatever 250 per hundred per 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 thousand then there's another type of publisher that is either kind of way above them or a little below them where it's not strictly cpm i mean if you're saying like millions of contacts it's not just a straight cpm you have other ways to monetize these contacts uh and then below them there's like well our market our advertisers aren't sophisticated to understand the value of cpm but there's obviously like the more context you have, like, like the, your, your value proposition just gets stronger. And 
I think if you don't see that clear value proposition, you know that you're always dealing with this list attrition thing. You look at your other sources of opt-in emails out there, and most of the people I've talked to have said, when we want to grow our list on social, our target is 60 cents, sometimes it's 75 cents, sometimes we end up paying a buck for these opt-in subscribers. And yeah, like they're, they showed more intent than, than someone who didn't opt-in on your website. But, you know, if this thing that I'm talking about on the back end works out and I can get you an email, a first name, a last name, and the landing page they were on of someone that was on your website and I pass that to you for 15 cents, like it's probably not 80% worse than the opt-in. So that is where I think the list attrition value really gets seen. It's like, okay, it's, 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 it's an absolute no-brainer if somebody's selling a JV newsletter takeover on a CPM and the CPM is like close to the price where they're buying emails. But every publisher knows, audience growth person knows that they're constantly fighting this battle. And if you can, and they know the price and the sources that they're getting different emails from. And I haven't spoken to anyone that's, that's gets a similarly engaged email for anywhere close to the price we're sending them over. So, um, so yeah, it just, it, it, it solves that problem, you know, to an extent, right? I mean, it only solves it to a proportion of your traffic. Yeah. That's ultimately what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Not infinitely scalable. You know, what do you see as, um, in terms of the uh, nuances in opt-ins, I, I think, you know, publishers still must use the email opt-in. Is there any, I know that and we spoke about ID tagging as well. Is there any other, even push notification can technically be seen as another opt-in as well. Have you seen any other interesting tech that you think might challenge what you guys are offering or what you think is, is going to help develop the direction? That's a good question. I mean, stuff's always evolving. It, it, to me, this is just, so I don't think that this technology is like the end all be all. I just think it's another great source of yeah. traffic back to your site and of records to market to. Uh, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, do I want an email based retargeting lead or a pop up opt in? Any opt-in I would prefer over this for the same cost, you know, but it's just, you know, these were, these might be people that maybe never would have opted in. So you get a chance to lead with a ton of value and capture a percentage of them and build them into, to, you know, loyal followers of your brand or whatever, that there's kind of no other way to do that now. So rather than, I mean, my favorite part of it, the thing that I was so unused to dealing with in the email marketing space is like, there's not like, it's, it's a complementary product to basically everything else that people's doing, people are doing. It's not like, it's not like if you put this in for 500 or a thousand bucks a month or whatever, you need to rip something else out, you know? And I kind of like view that as, as a similar landscape to how it relates to other types of audience growth tools, you know? Like I was talking to our marketing person, another, you know, he kept putting these messages in our, Andrew, who reached out to you, kept putting messages in our displayed ads that I didn't really say anything about at first, but eventually I was like, dude, I'm kind of getting a visceral reaction from, because he kept saying, grow your email list without pop-ups. And I was like, I kind of don't like this because it's not competitive to that. People, if they don't have pop-ups, 
they should use pop-ups because they work great. Even if they don't use email-based retargeting, they should. If they use pop-ups already and they implement email-based retargeting, they shouldn't take them off, you know? And I was worried that that message was like, was, was a bit confusing, you know? So yeah, I kind of view this as there's always, you know, there'll be, there'll always be technology coming to capture more customer records in different ways and stuff like that and get opt-ins or maybe get them without opt-ins. I mean, I think this is just, it's just on the cusp of the world accepting this as a way to operate and it's, it's complimentary rather than competitive. The million dollar question, uh, I, I know we've touched a bit on this before, is about, you know, like you said, people uh, might accept, even though they, you know, they don't know that you have their email or they've captured that details that they might accept that some people don't. So what is the way that you've seen like the magazine publisher, for example, and those other publishers, how have they been able to earn the trust from those anonymous visitors? Well, I'll start with what doesn't work. (laughs) Before, yeah. Yeah, so the only problems we've ever seen with complaints are people that have accumulated these contacts over a couple of weeks and they've just bulk mailed them. And, you know, they just like put them on a newsletter and send it out with like no thought. So we haven't had any other, anytime someone's had an issue with complaints, that was it. They, they did not send to these people quickly. What we recommend is that you start with a welcome series. It doesn't even have to be that different from somebody opting into your website, but the more you can be mindful of the fact that this is much higher up the funnel traffic than people who opted in and treat the journey that way. And usually that just means, look, you know what webpage they were on, because we tell you. If you have time and the sophistication to tailor journeys based on how people were were ingesting your content, what they were ingesting, I mean, what is great marketing? It's relevant, which in this case, I would say timely and subject relevant, personalized, and we give you all the tools to do that. Messaging, messaging, right? So always when you're trying to warm somebody up, this is no secret, lead with tons of value, right? If you know somebody who's interested in one subject, like lead with your best stuff on that subject, or you know, I don't know exactly how to do it. I'm not great at bringing people along the buyer journey in in publishing yet. And hopefully I'll have a better understanding of it in a year or so, but there's never been any complaint issues from people who are just right when those emails come in at 11 o'clock, they get pushed into whatever email marketing app it is that the person's using and they fire out this first welcome series. Never been any problems from that. And, you know, there's infinite opportunity in customizing those journeys because we give you a landing page they were on. What are other things you said? You said there's a few things that we shouldn't be doing. What what other things are there? Well, I would say, I mean, that's the big one. Just getting to them in a timely manner is is the biggest thing. Oh, what else have people had problems with? Um, I mean, that's 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 really just it. I mean, yeah. Okay. Just uh, hit them quickly. I'll just uh, I'm gonna edit that part a bit, but um, just uh, for, um, with that, I guess uh, with people who send it in timely, uh, sorry, in bulk, uh, is that gonna impact like uh, the delivery rate and um, 
is, does it, is there any impact on the deliverability and um, potentially being flagged by the ESP? Well, so that situation where you're trying it for the first time, you let the contacts accumulate over a couple of weeks yep. in your first experiment sending to these people. So the, the problem is what I think, and there's no like scientific proof around this. I think that the problem is that, okay, so if I'm on a website and I didn't opt in and I get an email the next day, just the state of the world with the internet, like an email and all that, like I get stuff all the time I don't subscribe or I don't know how people get information. I think most people feel the same way at this point. There's only, but they, most of them remember that they were on this, this, this website, even if they don't really know what it is. I think the issue is why you get so many spam complaints if you wait a couple weeks is a week is an eternity in, in like the mind of someone and what they have consumed on the internet, right? So I think it's just a matter of like, if you wait a week or two to send this out, like these people who did not opt in, they, they have no idea who you are. Even if they did opt in and you waited a week to send to somebody, they probably hit you for spam. I don't know if you didn't immediately sort of like start, you know, these branding impressions. So that's like the, the, the one, that's the thing that I think you want to assuage with these email addresses more than anything. And then once you've done that, it's, it's just a, a branding exercise. You know, it's, it's trying to slowly build trust with cold traffic in, in whatever way you can. And, you know, I would recommend probably putting them on a sequence of three or four, maybe even five warm-up emails and then not putting them into your newsletter or whatever your bulk is that you send out until after that sequence. Yep. Um, but if they've made it through and they're, you know, opening and not complaining and stuff and they're, they're, they're good to go after, after a few touch points. What do you think publishers need to do in order to be comfortable in actually doing a bit more cold outreach or doing, creating more direct relationships with even people that they haven't just using your, your solution? How do you think that the mind shift has to shift in order to make that be more open and accepting? Them to adopt that cold outreach approach and direct connection approach. I mean, I think that it just will with time. In my opinion, publishers are not marketers; are all about experimenting. And I think that the problem isn't so much what do they need to learn to make emailing to people up the funnel actually work like i think that's the easy part i think the hard part is just changing people's opinion about how bad this is so to speak right like moving it out of the gray area if you will and getting more brands comfortable with it and i think what's going to do that is people seeing their competitors doing it and seeing it working you know like it's it's harder it's it's just easy to accept something if there's a super clear economic case for it that a lot of people around you are having success with. Yeah. It's easier to do that than it is to be the pioneer, especially with gray area stuff. Um, that's for sure, you know. No, definitely. Um, but at the same time, like if it's if it's something that really works, and you, you guys are the pioneers, and that that brings a lot more advantages so it, it is a risk and reward thing but i guess uh yeah with that 
like how how did that make you you know with your background in trialing and pivoting a lot of times how did that help you with being resolute and certain with just going down this path because sometimes you know you when you pivot people either give up or they just like you said they thrive so if i understand the question correctly you're asking was the fact that this is a pioneering effort was did i like or am i gravitating am i excited about that or did i prefer being able to like do disruptive innovation being like oh i have like a cheaper faster better product but like you understand what it is from day one. So what made me really want to go all in on it yep. is the net promoter score question. So net promoter score for those who don't know, this Harvard Business School professor, I don't know how long, I don't know who it was ago. He said, if you ask people one question, and the question is, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend, or in our case, another business owner, one to 10. And People respond one to 10 and you average those numbers. And the average of those numbers is your net promoter score. This helps develop products and features because it just, uh, you know, you can, you can figure out if someone gave you a three and they're your perfect customer, you figure out why they gave you a three. If you can get that person up to a seven, then, you know, and it, it's, it's a seven or above for all of these people, you know, you have product market fit. People are going to, you know, they're going to talk to their friends about it. And you're going to get the benefit of word of mouth, which is, in my opinion, like the only way you can get a business to grow nowadays. Mm -hmm. So going all in on this came back to that net promoter score question. I was doing customer interviews with these people that were using this product that we built inside of Roadly called Roadly ID. And the experience was absolutely terrible. It was just, just to, to make, you know, make sure that it actually worked. And the publishers that I was talking to, I would get down to the end of them, like, don't be nice to me. Tell me how likely one to 10 are you to recommend this to other people? And the, like three or four in a row told me, well, I've already recommended it to somebody. So 10, <laughs> you know, which is just this crazy paradigm to start a startup in. You know, normally people launch, they have a three or four, they get it up to a seven and then they go raise $50 million and start really scaling the business. Yep. The fact that we know, and you know, the, the battle that I'm going through right now, to be totally honest with you, I know for a fact that if I speak to a local newspaper who has 50,000 contacts on their list and they'll pay us whatever, $500 or $1,000 a month, this is a 10 for them. I'm trying to figure out you know, how far up market that applies. There's a ceiling in this world. Like for instance, I haven't spoken to them, but like Condé Nast, they never do it. Like they're, there's too much risk. You know, I have spoken to the CEO of, of Dot Dash. He's a buddy from a while back. Like, same thing. Organizationally, they don't get that close to the gray. So the battle now is like figuring out how far up market that 10 out of 10 NPS score applies because, you know, you, you, you just know it's a slam dunk if their business operates even remotely similarly to these people. So, yeah, that was really what, you know, you read all this stuff about product market fit and how it's supposed to feel when stuff is really working. And this is like a huge indicator. It's like there's, there's the NPS score and then there's like the dissatisfaction survey. You can also ask people, how dissatisfied would you be if you couldn't use this product again? Yep. And all of these publishers would have said very dissatisfied because like the, the ROI is just like so clear. So, so that was really it. 
that's, that's that's good to know. Um, and with that as well, like, what's the what's the plan moving forward? And yeah, what's the plan? Because uh, there's this different plays you can take with this. Like, you know, you have that connection with Bounce Exchange, and even like with um, data exchange servers as well. Combining second party and third party data is it's something that a lot of people will do. Like, is there an integration play here? Is there just purely a direct market play or yeah. I mean, we're going to try to integrate with as many different things as possible, kind of as demand for those integration happens. Luckily, in most cases, integrating with other platforms is not that hard just because the only thing we're doing is sending contact records somewhere. So yeah. we've got an API, it's got nine fields in it, and we just like match those nine fields up to the nine fields in somebody else's application. And it just doesn't take that long. So that's great. I'm trying, so ideally, in my mind, for a business like this, I mean, I sold a low priced software as a service product, and it's just very difficult, <laughs> like selling something for $50 a month and trying to scale a business on that, uh, especially to the type of people that buy products for $50 a month, like small, and, and you can read a bunch of stuff about software as a service businesses. And they all say the same thing. It's like, the smaller the customer is, the less they pay, the harder it is to sell for them, the harder it is to support them, and their churn rate is much higher than people who spend much more. It makes okay. sense. People who spend much more don't go out of business. They buy things for value. They're sophisticated. You know. So ideally for me, this is an outbound sales effort um, that hits people who are subscription price you know, in, the, in the thousands to 10,000. And there's a ton of, you don't need that much, for, that much traffic at 20 cents per record on, you know, 20 or 30% of your, your volume to be that customer. It's surprising the businesses that are. So I think there's a ton of them. It's figuring out how to, how to, how to reach them and like uh, create the, the sales copy and, you know, just whatever the strategy is to get to them, whether it's trade shows, I don't know. Um, and then I also am trying to figure out you know, companies like Live Intent or like BounceX or whatever, is there a way that our product increases the lifetime value of their service and the stickiness of their customers to where they would give us intros to their customer base, to people who would be interested in this? Because anybody that I actually, I mean, the interesting thing is we get on calls with people sometimes and I don't know why they respond to the email, but they don't understand at all what we do. So right. anybody that I can just talk to and explain it, if you're open to trying it, like you'll just try it. And it's super easy to try. You know, we don't get people in year long contracts in the beginning. You just like buy a certain amount of records, throw some code on your site and you know, you see that you see the magic work. So I'm going to be trying to do that as well. Figuring out if there's value for these companies that sell into all these publishers enough to where they would actually refer their customers to us. And how about in terms of improving the tech? You said that as well, you're, you're tracking using ID, tagging, um, or you all combine that together. Is there any other things that you might do to help increase that? Is there like, like offline play or something that, that will increase that ID tagging or, or cross device? Yeah, there may be. I mean, my priorities right now are getting that cost per lead down because right now we're basically like, we're providing a postal, postal record that has a cost that I don't think most publishers want. And yeah. they're, they're the best avatar. The, the holy, so that's kind of what I'm looking for or looking at right now. And then just 
getting the integration network big enough to where most people, when they sign up, could use it immediately. Number two would be, so to get it to market and to keep the cost down, we're delivering data once a day, right? If we could do it real time, that would probably be 10 times better. I don't know what the, I mean, I know for, it's just a totally different value proposition. Like the cost, it's not going to be a cost effective way to grow your list, but I think that it serves a different customer in a different way. You know what I mean? Well, um, it could that be that. Email, it's the, it's that a real time, real time drip that you've mentioned, which I think people would value. Yeah, exactly. And the question is, well, it could get valued by e-commerce more than it gets valued by publishers. You know, like, I don't think an e-commerce company is as concerned with list attrition as publishers are. And they're definitely more concerned with actually selling to that email address right then, which publishers may not be. I don't know. So this is all, this is all the journey, right? Like, uh, you know, I think I know we're on to something just because the, the reception from small to medium-sized publishers has been so good. And some larger ones have danced with it and been like, oh, this is great. And, you know, we'll just keep listening to them, building what they want and, uh, and see where it takes us. I hope, um, since you guys are in that space, um, I hope one year down the track, we hear more about what you guys are doing and that people realize that we were one of the first as well to speak with you guys on your journey. So with that, Adam, I wish you all the best and thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.